This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a gist newsletter. To sign up for it, our once-a-week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gist news. It's Wednesday, June 19th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The New York Times put forward today a compelling video project where every presidential candidate except Joe Biden looked into the camera and answered a series of questions. I found out, for instance, only Steve Bullock supports the death penalty. And only Tulsi Gabbard thinks Trump was exonerated. Uh, That report came back showing there was no collusion. I also found out Gabbard's father was from New Zealand and Michael Bennett's mom fled Europe after World War II. My mom had recently arrived uh, when she was 10 years old as a, um, uh, a Polish Jew who had survived the Holocaust. My dad's Mostly I made a conscious choice to expose myself to the candidates who I normally ignore. I guess I owe them a few minutes of consideration, right? So I acquitted myself with uh, Seth Moulton and I learned that he's still trying to work the kinks out on his alien invasion bit. I was asked what I would do in an alien invasion. And I said, well, you've got to try diplomacy first. So you'd sit down with the aliens and have a burger and a beer. And then if the conversation didn't go well, you could say, um, anyway, the last aliens who visited, they're in this burger. So I don't know. That joke just didn't go over well. (laughs) People didn't get it. I found out that Eric Swalwell's self-defined most embarrassing moment was mistaking fireworks for gunfire and urging his family to get down on the ground. I'm going to say that's not exactly embarrassing. It's an indication of what's weighing on the mind of Representative Eric Swalwell. I found out that Steve Bullock is embarrassed. It's something we all do. You know, if you call somebody by the wrong name, that sucks. (laughs) Indeed, it does suck because that actually wasn't Steve Bullock. It was Tim Ryan. The embarrassing moment question was great. It was just great. We found out that Kirsten Gillibrand listens to podcasts in the shower, but can't remember the actual name of the podcast. And I am listening to my podcasts about the news of the day. I'm listening to, what was I listening to? It's the gist. Say the gist. The NPR one. Um something first, something like that. All right, it was up first. And we also learned some personal information about Amy Klobuchar here. She mentions her unmentionables. So I bring on my backpack and this literally holding all my clothes. I get on the plane. I have to shove the backpack under. I sit in my seat and this nice guy behind me as I'm on to this Fox Town Hall goes, hey, hey, Senator, you left something there in the aisle. And it was my rather brightly colored underwear. And then there was John Hickenlooper talking about flatulence. I was um, with my son, who is 16, and uh, used a a, a term, a phrase uh, that was somewhat crude. And I paused and, and basically was a describing flatulence and and he looked at me very seriously and then looked at me with pity at the very fact that I was embarrassed anyway it was it was a typical awkward moment that one has with one's family do you want to say the term now well I was I was talking about farting (laughs) anyway Former Governor Hickenlooper didn't break news, even if he did break wind. 
Cory Booker has perhaps too high an estimate of how interesting he is. Um, I've given a lot of thought to that, and it's not something I'm going to be telling the New York Times about right now. I know you guys are trying to get a scoop. Really, your hypothetical itinerary upon being elected president, that does not count as a scoop. And I don't think that Eric Swalwell's conception of how the White House Department of Human Resources works is the most accurate. I'm going to fire Jared Kushner on day one. I would guess that once his father-in-law lost the election, that Mr. Kushner would clear out his offices on his own. But overall, this was a great way to get to know the candidates, except Joe Biden, who's too good for the New York Times or something. Come on, Joe. If Amy Klobuchar can talk about her bright underwear, you can talk about that time you gave a shout out to working with a segregationist senator as an example of bipartisanship. I mean, Hickenlooper already manned up about the fart. Just own the brain fart. On the show today, a congressional panel on reparations and one truly embarrassing expert witness. But first, Taffy Brodesser Ackner is a New York Times Magazine profiler who has written a new novel, Fleischman is in Trouble. The Fleischman, the titular Fleischman, is Toby Fleischman, who just got divorced from his ex-wife Rachel, who I guess is a Fleischman too, and we find out she's also in trouble. That said, my conversation with Taffy was no trouble at all. It was just, just a pure delight. Check it out. Taffy Brodesser Ackner is the greatest profiler walking today, which doesn't mean she figures out who solves crimes unless celebrity itself is a crime. So would it stand to reason that the person who's compiling the best celebrity and other profiles would be the greatest debut novelist of 2019? I don't know if it does, but it just may be the case. Because Taffy's new book is called Fleischman is in Trouble. Think Saul Bellow meets Gillian Flynn, but without the murder and also Upper East Side, not Upper West Side. Nice. Hey, Taffy, how are you? Hi, I'm impressed and gr- <laughs> and grateful for that. <laughs> the buttering up part. I love it. I love it. If this you're is, ready to shiv me, this is where it goes. But your a lot of your profiles are about a profile, and this is a book about a book in a way. It, I interesting. I, no one has asked me that yet, but it's also a book that's a profile in a way too. Yeah, it's right? two profiles. I yeah. really want to get. So, do you have any rules about how much we have to hold back? I don't know. I think it's like not like. It's not nice to yes. tell everyone what the thing is. But, but there's a great shifting of perspective. There's yes. Right. And so what I want to know is in the writing process, how fundamental was that to writing the book and the conception of the book that you wanted to change perspectives throughout the book? It was the same as when I write a profile. When I write a profile, I'm I'm all in with my subject until suddenly I start asking harder questions and remembering who I work for and remembering, you know, it's very, it's very dazzling to be with a celebrity. And I actually started writing a book about a man because that's what I was comfortable with. And that's what I did. I was working at GQ at the time. And then suddenly my own perspective started to shift Mm -hmm. and I started to ask the questions of my subject myself. So we find the narrator who's Elizabeth named Libby, sort of like Stephanie is named uh, Taffy. Oh, no. Right? Oh, I hadn't thought yeah. of that. Yeah, right. <laughs> she lives in New Jersey, and she's been to Israel. Um, in, in uh, this is, I think, the key. Here's the key passage to explain what 
you and the narrator think, I thought about that. I wrote mostly about men. I hadn't interviewed a lot of women. Whatever I did, the stories were always about the struggle to be the kind of woman who got interviewed, the writers who were counted on, the politicians who were mistaken for secretaries, the actresses who were pretty and were too fat and tall and skinny. It was the same story. The first time I interviewed a man, I understood we were talking about something more like the soul. She talks about how no one will pay attention to a woman unless she's talking about a man. And so this is a book about a man. And we have to, I guess, spend the bulk of the book with the man and through his eyes. And that's the only way that what we we are interested in the woman that we would take the woman seriously you know what's the dynamic we would tolerate we would tolerate tolerate the story of the woman oh because the whole book sort of sets up almost a mystery like right we're as as readers as uh ingesters of narrative we're longing for the other side so at that point we're like i wonder what the woman thinks right that's what i think and i think that also the thing i've learned in profiles is that People really like to know what the person who witnessed all Mm -hmm. the information thinks. And I think some people are more deft at conveying that without actually using a first person. Um, But the way I do it is I use a first person. I I think that's artificial. I don't know if anyone literally faulted you for that, but since you do it so well, when was the last time someone said, oh, but she wrote I in her, she said she had clam sauce on her on her shirt when she was interviewing Gwyneth Paltrow I mean, rather no than one. this interviewer. But that's because yeah. I'm very careful with it. Mm-hmm. I make sure that the I that's in there is the I that is not at all indulgent. Like I still have a womanly thing where yeah. I can speak very efficiently and only, only when when asked. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, the clam sauce example, it, the clam juice, sorry, there was no sauce. No. <laughs> the clam juice example is a great example of I, w- I in that in that Gwyneth Paltrow profile, am, the person I am is who I need to be to convey what it is like to be in a room with her, which is not to say it's not me. Right. It's absolutely me. It's just not, it's, I just don't want to be a full character. I want to be an illuminating character. Yeah. But, but in that profile... And it does work with your uh, character of Libby in the book, but with the profile of Gwyneth, it was important that you were, uh, okay, I'll use a cliche, and every woman, relatable. Like, she is I mean, look the, at me. She is the I'm light. I'm every woman. You are, come on, you have this uh, fetching jungle print uh, dress I am, on. I'm dressed up for you a party tonight. Up. <laughs> I shouldn't say that today. I am quite fetching today. This That's is right. not, this is not this is a regular point. day. I don't want to say it, but it's true. But in that one, <laughs> everyone imagines themselves, if they were to be next to the light that was Gwyneth Paltrow, would they even, you know, be visible to the naked eye? And so that's the role you were playing. That's the role is the the the, the speck of dust that still existed in that light, in that beautiful golden light. I thought of all, and I don't know that I've read all of your profiles. I realize that I've read a lot. And I think of the ones that I have read, that Gwyneth one kind of informs the book a lot more than the other ones do. Hmm. In that she's this star and the dynamic between Rachel and the star women in her in her uh, school, in her social milieu, right. is maybe a lot like that. I mean, I'm obsessed with class. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I was always the sort of the not rich kid at a private school, um, which makes me very comfortable sitting in Gwyneth Paltrow's kitchen and it makes me like I'm I'm comfortable with my discomfort in mm-hmm. those moments and that's the only place I can be is the not wealthy person who is invited to the table of the wealthy people but doesn't really belong there that's a great 
place for a journalist to be. I mean, right. that's how journalists are born. Right. That's yeah. what, that's that's how I think. That's how I, I think that that's what a writer is, is yeah. someone who can't stop observing and can never actually participate in the situation, can only observe it. The character, the, the narrator, you know, there's the class element, and for maybe a lot of people, it would end there. These are just rich people and rich people's problems. Right. But you're not just understanding or sympathizing with them despite their problems. You're explaining right. how their problems are because even though they're the 0.1%, they're not the 0.01%. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the book is squarely divided not between the rich and the poor, but the rich who have never been in danger of not being rich right. and the people who became rich and always know that they could lose it at any minute. Did some of the rich celebrities that you interviewed, did it dawn on you in, uh, in cavorting with them? No, but I always think, you know, I, I, I'm friends with a lot of profilers and we've told each other all stories about, you know, the time the credit card was declined, the time where you couldn't, you didn't have enough cash to valet at the chateau, which yeah. is like, is it $7,000 to, <laughs> to valet at the chateau? Um, the time that somebody said to you casually, I mean, I remember when, when, when Gwyneth Paltrow in the middle of our dinner, I got a call, a carpooling call saying, you know, are you picking up or am I picking up? And I was like, I'm so sorry. I just have to answer this because I realized that I'd left my carpool partners without a plan. And I said, I'm in, you know, I'm in California. And Gwyneth Paltrow looked at me like in the, sh in the shadow of her butler, mm -hmm. looked at me with sympathy and was like, I get it. And I was like, I don't know what to do with that. It's very polite that you would say that. I'm sure you have related issues mm -hmm. about your children and, and your ambition on behalf of your children. But you have never been across the country working and have completely forgotten right. to make arrangements for your children right. after soccer practice. Right. Apple Apple has a retinue of people I to mean, help a Apple. Yes, Apple. <laughs> Apple one of Apple's uh, registry gifts was a chauffeur. <laughs> Apple has her own orchard named after herself. Um, oh, but it is true, it is also true that the gap between you and Gwyneth, and maybe I'm wrong, like maybe Gwyneth is one of these people who's actually worth a billion and a half and I don't know, but right. let's just take the gap between you sure. and Gwyneth is as as a percentage or even as a lived experience, at least as big or maybe bigger than the gap between the average, even American, I'm not even going to take person of the world, and you. Um, the, Gwyn if the gap between yeah. me and Gwyneth Paltrow is yeah. the largest gap you can imagine. <laughs> there's so like there's so many valleys in it, and there's so many layers, and it begins with our posture, and it ends with our money, and it also starts even earlier than when we met. Um, our fathers grew up in the same neighborhood, um, and I don't even know if I told her that. It wasn't it wasn't like a creepy, like, here's my revenge for me only being middle class while you got to be very rich. But there is, there is no overlap in our experiences, which is why it's so upsetting that she is so smart and cool and aware. That's the thing that kills me. If yeah. she wasn't. I would I would feel bad for her with all her money. That's how I would comfort myself. But she's actually amazing. Yeah, I've I've read yours was the best, but there are two or three examples where I don't know. We've gone off on this Gwyneth tangent, should, but let mean, me ask you: it's what it's what they want to hear. Let's <laughs> it be does it does seem to me <laughs> that she represents uh, a, a thing close to a princess, but then people find out actually she's not just performatively cool, or she's so good at it that I can't tell that she's not cool. Like people right. wind up actually liking her and. I see, it's weird. I uh, your your profile was one. 
Um, in Howard Stern's new book, he talks about that being like this breakthrough right. interview mm-hmm. where she was really honest. And then a similar example, I've hated everything that Howard Schultz has done on his uh, stupid centrism tour. Uh-huh. But he did an interview with her for the Goop podcast. Yeah. And both of them come off as like, oh, these are relatable people. I, I get mean, it. Just it's listen to her. Way, it yeah. is infuriating. Like, it, it's not fair that you can that you can be both, mm-hmm. that you can be given gifts on the outside and gifts on the inside. And that's the thing that's so triggering about yeah. her, right? Like, that's what's right. not so, that's what's not fair about her. She she disrupts, she disrupts the, the tacit agreement that American women have with their elected celebrities um, that, she could be a little bit out of touch, that she should acknowledge her gifts. And instead, she says, no, I'm, I'm actually more like you than you think I am. If you, if you just, if you hydrated a little more and <laughs> ate some more, like, citrus. Right. But only the right, like, and that's infuriating. Yeah. It's not infuriating when someone sits down to your profile and eats, a, like, a triple cheeseburger and says, oh, it's just my genes, which is what they're there, like, their publicist told them to do that, so that they can let the reader of the profile off the hook. That is the agreement. Yeah. I will let you off the hook. You couldn't be me if you tried. And what Gwyneth Paltrow says is, actually, you could be me if you tried. And that is the thing that drives us insane. And that she's making money on our trying. That Goop is offering the right. lifestyle avenue to our trying. Right. She, she, she heard for so many years that people admire her. Ugh. I know I, how I sound here, but there's almost a guileless, hey, here's this recipe. Right. Here's the brand I use. Here's the cream I here's use. Before she commodified. Yeah. I mean. Suggest where we put yeah. it. <laughs> here's the, here, like, she's commodified it recently. But before that, she was giving out recommendations. She always wanted to be the person with the recommendations. Okay. Last question. I've read many of your profiles, and usually you describe the celebrity. And granted, so many of them are so beautiful. But there is a limited vocabulary that you can use to describe uh, a person who you're writing a profile of. Did you take a certain glee in leveling the appearance of some of your characters, really going for it and describing people who weren't physically attractive? Give me an example here. What I don't even know what you're referring to. Who was the? Was she a lawyer or a mediator who looked like she had been like smashed? <laughs> she had been. Oh, like, in the book. Yeah. Oh my god. No, that's yes. what I mean. Finally, that yes, you could. I mean, and also, it, you know, the challenge was is that I get to describe celebrities by the thing that jumps out at you in person that didn't jump out at me from from my acquaintance with their public persona, mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow's posture, or. Nicki Minaj's height or, yeah. you know, the things that you don't really see. Maybe the sparkle of Melissa McCarthy's face. Yeah, yeah, that you can't believe it. Yeah. And here's the thing you need to know because also there's a picture and also it's 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 different because you know who this is. But describing people from whole cloth was so hard and then so wonderful <laughs> to realize that, like, none of these people will be angry at me or that I won't be called sexist or whatever oh, you will it is. Be, I mean, I will be. I know. Yeah, yeah. We're, all, we're all waiting our cancellation. <laughs> like, that's the truth. It's inevitable. But, yeah, like, the things that, that get you criticism have to be mostly about real people. I think when men describe women in books— I think you know there there was a there have been a few very funny articles about how that goes but I think that these people it was a challenge to make them real 
it's it was a challenge for me as a writer who does not describe people from head to toe. It's a thing I don't like in profiles mm-hmm. when you say he has dark hair. Like I know that. Yeah. He's He's Rob Pattinson. Of course he has dark hair. Almost like a vampire. Right. <laughs> tell me like, tell me if it's green for the day. That's the only way I want to hear yeah. about Rob Pattinson. You know what else I hate? Total non sequitur? Describing the, how pressed the person's shirt is. They're going to change the shirt tomorrow. Oh how does that gosh. reveal character? It reveals nothing. Yeah. It, nothing that actually happens. I know you got two hours with him. But yeah. <laughs> nothing that happens in the interview is real. Yeah. That's the thing that a profiler always has to keep in mind that you have to not say like what is like what is the thing that's happening here? It's what does it mean that it's happening here? What like what what are you trying to construct for me as opposed to what has been constructed for me? Well, this has all been real. Too <laughs> real. Totally real. <laughs> Thank you. I, <laughs> this has been real for me this as the well. The realist. This yes. was very real for me. Taffy Brodesser Ackner's new book, first book, first novel, Fleischman is in trouble. Thanks so much, Taffy. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. Today, the House Judiciary Committee held a hearing on reparations. Technically, the hearing was whether to vote for a bill that would establish a commission to study the issue of reparations. Personally, and you've heard me say this, I think reparations in terms of writing a check to African Americans from non-African Americans is practically unworkable. But if the question before me is, should we convene a panel of experts to look into reparations? I can answer it this way. Today, the House Judiciary Committee convened a panel of experts to look into reparations, and I watched all three hours. I was interested, so there's that. And what experts they were. The Democrats called economist Julianne Malveaux and Katrina Brown, who's a documentarian who told about her family, her Rhode Island family's benefit from the slave trade. There was law professor Eric Miller, who has researched the issue of reparations and represented victims of the Tulsa massacre of 1921. There was Pulitzer Prize winner Tanahasi Coates. The Republicans invited Coleman Hughes, a bright young 23 writer for Quillette, who's a Columbia University student. And they also invited this guy, Burgess Owens. Here's committee chair Steve Cohen listing Mr. Owens' credentials. Mr. Burgess Owens is an author and a retired professional football player for the New York Giants and the Oakland Raiders. He's the author of a number of books, including the 2016 book Liberalism, or How to Turn Good Men into Whiners, Weenies, and Wimps. Yes, Burgess Owens, who retired from the NFL with 30 career interceptions, could not pick off any of the arguments flying around him today. I've seen Burgess Owens before on Fox News opposing NFL players who kneel, likening them to Marxists. I've seen him give speeches to conservative groups where he makes claims like this. Black entertainment television has not, for 20 years, been controlled by black people, controlled by Viacom, white socialists. Ah, yes, the socialists at Viacom. In recent years, he got a boost from the NFL player kneeling story. He wrote a book, Why I Stand... It was a triumphant follow-up to the Wimps and Weenies tome. Here, he lays out to a group of young conservatives the very answer to that question, why he stands. You guys noticed this year a lot of this, 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 the uh, lack of standing for the flag. I understand it's unfortunate these, these young men that are millionaires that have the world at their fingertips. They can go out and do all kinds of great things. They literally, if they will pool their funds together, it's billions of dollars represented. They can do so much in our communities. They won't because for 
the previous 15, 20 years, they've been taught to be Marxists and socialists. And Marxists and socialists don't think about solutions. They think about rioting, demonstrating, calling names, and being bullies. Uh-huh. I got to tell you, it is something to see a group of white teens, over 90% of them were white teens, asking a black man old enough to be older than their father, maybe their grandfather, why should we call you African-American, not just American? Or what do we do about single fathers and other problems in the black community? Burgess came back with a sort of knowledge mixed with personal history. At five years old, I was in, in the, in the uh, country of uh, Africa. But it wasn't the country of Africa. It was the country of America where Burgess was an expert witness today. Let us now hear some of his expert testimony. By the way, high minimum wages sound as good as it sounds. It keeps our young people out of work. It keeps them, they're too expensive to hire to even get started if you have high minimum wage. Now, the, now the unions benefit from that, by the way. And order, open borders hurts our race. Period. Period. It's common sense. If you have non-Americans coming in, paying, uh, working for lower wages, we get hurt first. We've got to understand that. And let's, let, let's, let's get this thing right, guys. It's about our people, my race. We are just as good as anyone else out there given the right opportunity and not told that we can't. But us raising our kids and telling them that because of their skin color, they're already against, against Every opportunity is out there is stealing their dreams. We can't afford to do that. So my, my parents' generation, the greatest generation in the history of mankind, told us to dream big and, and whip out those other guys who are working harder and showing them they're wrong. And we did that. All right, we got to stop it there. Because rather than beat up on this non-expert, allow me to criticize those who brought him onto the panel. Burgess Owens has made a fine living as a motivational speaker before white conservative audiences who want to believe that slavery is in our minds and that racism is overcome by hard work. He speaks before their conferences, is a paid contributor to Fox News, and is now a congressional expert. Or maybe he's a living testament to hard work. The argument being, if you're a professional athlete, you can get hooked up with a sweet paycheck by saying inane things to a white conservative crowd that wants to hear, you can make it in America. And by make it, I mean the somewhat circular reasoning of make it before Congress to testify about making it in America and testifying before Congress. And let me say this. I've been around retired NFL players long enough to be sensitive to the effects of dementia. That may well be what's going on here. But it should also be noted that it was a conscious and clear-eyed choice of the Republicans on the panel to put forward Burgess Owens, and that's an insult to the proceedings and the issue, and also, in a way, to Mr. Owens himself. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. Their most embarrassing moment on the trail was when Tulsi Gabbard tried to remember the name of the podcast she had listened to, and they helpfully suggested, was it up first? And Tulsi said, no, 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 Chapo something something house. T.J. Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She got the job by firing, on her first day, the past occupant of that job. It was Jared Kushner. The gist. Wait, what is that? Oh, Hickenlooper, at least say excuse me. Umpru Depru Dupru, and thanks for listening.